NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre is under growing pressure tonight. More fallout from Brett Favre's connection to that massive case of welfare fraud in Mississippi. New texts show Favre in contact with then-Governor Phil Bryant and other state officials as he pushed to secure funding meant for people in poverty. If you find all the headlines about Brett Favre and this unfolding welfare fraud scandal in Mississippi kind of dizzying, that is completely understandable. The new court filing says the former football star waged a campaign to aggressively lobby for millions of dollars from the state welfare agency. Nancy New stated former Governor Phil Bryan directed her to provide $1.1 million in welfare funds to NFL great Brett Favre. Even after we covered the case with Mississippi Today's Anna Wolf last Wednesday, the names and allegations and revelations have not stopped. Favre requested money for an indoor football practice facility to help recruit a player for his college alma mater. He texted Bryant that he wanted to name the volleyball complex after the governor. We obviously need your help big time and time is working against us, Favre texted. And all of it raises valid questions about possible criminal charges, not only for Brett Favre, but also for the state's former governor, Phil Bryant. Bryant replied, we're going to get there, but we have to follow the law. I'm too old for federal prison. Is it possible that the former governor could face criminal exposure? Anything's possible. So today, we speak to the government investigator who helped uncover the largest fraud scandal in Mississippi history, State Auditor Shad White. He saw the contract, he's seen the terms of it, and he's acknowledged to agents that he did not give those speeches. That's the most basic point here. And we try to understand what's been happening behind the scenes as one of the most famous retired athletes in this country is accused of defrauding the poorest people in America's most impoverished state and where this case goes next. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Thursday, September 29th. This is ESPN Daily. Chad White, State Auditor of the State of Mississippi, I am excited to talk to you today, and I suppose it may not surprise you to learn that we don't often interview state auditors on ESPN Daily. So could you explain just what the job actually is and how you got into doing it? Sure. Yeah, I can tell you that for my wife, she's shocked that I'm on ESPN given my athletic ability. So uh, everybody's surprised in this scenario. (laughs) Same, honestly. Yeah. So a little bit about the state auditor's office. Most states have a state auditor, but they all differ from state to state. So in the state of Mississippi, if through the course of our routine audits or, or getting a tip, we discover that someone has misused or stolen public funds, we have the ability to investigate that. And then ultimately, if we see that somebody has violated the law, we take that to a prosecutor and we work with prosecutors pretty regularly to make sure that individuals are held accountable if we we discover wrongdoing involving public funds. So that's that's kind of a, a big picture overview. Our mission is pretty simple, is to make sure that public funds here in the state are spent in the way that the law requires. Yeah, and so the fraud case that we're here to discuss today The case that has ensnared Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Favre has ensnared so many others. When did you first learn of it and how did this case first start? Yeah, the the tip that led to this investigation in my office actually came to us from former Governor Phil Bryant. So in the summer of 2019, 
he brought information to my office, to me specifically, and the information was fairly narrow. It was somebody, a vendor to the Mississippi Department of Human Services was potentially giving a kickback to the director of that agency. And that was it. So in Mississippi, the Department of Human Services is the agency that handles welfare funds. So TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, SNAP, Child Care Subsidies. Because of our high poverty rate, tons of money flows through that agency. So it's a very powerful agency. And, and the person who sits atop it awards grants and hires tons of vendors to uh, to disperse those funds. So what we first heard was somebody, one of the vendors, uh, now we know it's Brett DiBiase, who's the, the son of a former professional wrestler, right. was potentially giving a kickback to the head of that agency. And I would say late in the fall of 2019, we realized that many more individuals beyond just Brett DiBiase and John Davis, the head of the state agency, were involved. We really built a criminal case on six individuals at that point took those six individuals and some other facts over to uh, the local district attorney here, whose name is Jody Owens, and, and he indicted those six individuals. We then arrested them. And, and I would really say, Pablo, from then until the time we released our first big, more exhaustive audit of DHS's operations in the first half of 2020, that's when it became clear that beyond just a kickback scheme, we had multiple instances of fraud involving multiple individuals, and the more exhaustive audit revealed that beyond the fraud, there were tens of millions of dollars that had basically just been lit on fire. So money that wasn't necessarily stolen, mm. but money that went to pay for advertisement at college bowl games. So I don't know how many how many welfare recipients here in Mississippi went out of state to a college bowl game. But um, our argument was that they did not benefit from that money and that it was a violation of federal statute. So we found tons of examples of misspending like that. And, and that's really when it became clear to the public when we released that first big audit that this was something beyond just um, a few thousand dollars that had gone missing. We investigated over many, many months and, and ultimately it got us to where we are today, which is uh, the largest public fraud scheme in the history of the state. Yeah, so TANF, which you said, is the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program, a federal program, a welfare program. I do want to understand better, too, how it's supposed to work, Shad. And this is in the context, of course, of a state where I believe over 30% of people in poverty are also African-American. And so I just want to set the context here for what this is supposed to look like and how different the reality was when you began to look into it. Well, the way it's supposed to work is that the federal government would hand down these big block grants to states, and then the states were supposed to take those funds, that block grant, and through a state agency, decide how they would spend the money. And generally speaking, of course, the money had to go to help needy people, temporary assistance for needy families. That's an oversimplification, but but that's generally the, the purpose of the program. So around the country, states choose to do this differently. Some states choose to give direct checks to individuals who are needy. That's sort of what we think of historically when we think of welfare. Other states chose to run that money through a nonprofit, and the nonprofit would then set up programs with the goal, ideally, of helping the poor. Some states chose to give tax credits to individuals who went from being unemployed to being employed. So really, the program was designed to give states a ton of flexibility. The problem with that, of course, is if you have a state who has a broken TANF system, mm. who wants to reward politically powerful people with that money and not demand any results, it's easy for the states to get away with that. And so that's what we had here. We had a state agency director who was giving 
huge chunks of this money to a nonprofit here in town, tens of millions of dollars. He was making demands on how that money should be spent. Sometimes those demands were in violation of federal law. And then on the other end at the nonprofit, once they saw that the money could be misspent and that no one was really watching this, they also decided to spend, misspend some more of that money, some of that to their personal benefit. So really that's how we got from this this program and how it's supposed to function given the vision of those who wrote the program in the 90s to where we are right now. And so when did Brett Favre's name, to get to the sports-specific aspect of this, when did Brett Favre's name first show up as part of this whole investigation? Really through the fall of 2019, we were very privately investigating this matter. We had just been working on it for a few months. And, and the first thing that really implicated Mr. Favre was this company called Prevacus which is a company based in Florida. It's run by a guy named Jacob Van Landingham, Dr. Jacob Van Landingham. And Prevacus was claiming at the time that they had invented a treatment for concussions. So if you hit your head in a football game, they had this straw treatment where you'd put one end in your mouth and, and the other up your nose and you could blow through it and it would shoot some sort of medicine into your, your nasal cavity. Mm. And so they, they had this invention that they were pitching. And what we saw when we were investigating was that millions of dollars of welfare funds here in the state had gone to Prevacus. So really, those were the key elements that first showed us that something involving Brett Favre uh, was at play here because Mr. Favre was an investor in Prevacus. He had done interviews on TV uh, to promote the company. And, And so really, that's when his name first popped up as we were investigating all this. And so now we're about three years into this entire process. What have you found in full, Shad, to be the involvement of Brett Favre? There are two big findings that related to Mr. Favre. The first was that $5 million of welfare funds had been spent to build a very, very nice volleyball court at the University of Southern Mississippi. Of course, Mr. Favre's an alum of, of that university. Mm-hmm. His daughter was going there at the time and playing volleyball at the time. And, and of course, the public now knows through the release of, of his text messages that he was the one orchestrating the flow of federal funds to that volleyball court. And then in addition to that, we found $1.1 million of welfare funds had been paid to Mr. Favre. And and when we asked the question, okay, what did he do to earn the $1.1 million? We were given a contract by the nonprofit that handled the money. And the contract said that Mr. Favre was supposed to cut a radio ad and give several speeches. We then asked the follow-up question, which is natural. When were the speeches? Where did he give them? He had already been paid the $1.1 million. So in Mississippi, under Mississippi law, you can't be paid before you've delivered the services. He would have had to have delivered the services. So we asked, where were the speeches? We were given a list of dates and events, very short, perfunctory list. And I think that the folks at the nonprofit assumed that we would just stop digging at that point. But but the audit Mm. team here dug in a bit more. We looked at event agendas. We looked at social media posts. We talked to individuals who'd been to those events. We very quickly determined that Mr. Farr had not been at those events. He had not given those speeches. Later on, uh, in an interview with Mr. Farr, attended by my agents, attended by uh, FBI agents, Mr. Farr confirmed that he had not given the speeches that were listed uh, uh, that came along with that contract. So really, those are the two big pieces that, that folks have focused on because they involve the flow of millions of dollars to uh, to the university uh, as orchestrated by Mr. Favre or to him personally. And so you just mentioned some text messages. You mentioned the flow of money. And I want to re- just introduce a couple of names here for clarity's sake, just to follow up on them, because one of those names is John Davis, the former director of the Mississippi Department of Human Services. At the time in question, 
Chad. He had the authority to direct which nonprofits would receive this money. He pled guilty last week. The other person to mention here is Nancy New, the woman who is running the nonprofit we've been referring to here. She pled guilty last spring. And so when you refer to these text messages that detail Brett Favre's involvement with those individuals, just explain what we're talking about there specifically. Yeah, so so originally when a lot of this news broke, Mr. Favre's attorneys tried to say, well, he didn't know that this was welfare money. What we know from the text messages now is that he knew this money was public money because he had approached Ms. New and he had approached John Davis, who again is running a state agency, so he's handling public funds. Mr. Farvin approached the two of them and tried to get money for this volleyball court along with the governor of the state of Mississippi. And uh, of course, he got what he wanted. He got the money flowing from John through Miss New. And then he acknowledged that in text messages as well. So there's some some text messages where he said, I love you and John as well. He was He was grateful for this flow of money that had gone to the thing that he had asked it to go for. Uh, and then in addition to that, his lawyers followed up once those text messages came out and they realized that that was not a great argument to be making out in public. They said, well, really, the $1.1 million didn't have anything to do with that volleyball court. They didn't exactly explain why he was paid the $1.1 million other than to say he had cut some radio ads and they claimed that he had actually performed that service. We pointed out that, no, your text messages do say that you wanted the $1.1 million to go to the volleyball court. And two, the contract just very plainly says that you had to give those speeches and you didn't give those speeches. So then following on that, his lawyers also said, well, the contract's really a sham. It's not a real document. And he hmm. should not be held accountable for complying with the terms of the contract. And as state auditor, my response to that is, that's even worse for you. Because if you got paid $1.1 million on a sham, non-existent contract, guess what? You have to pay back the $1.1 million. We don't just hand out $1.1 million for nothing at all. So really, that was that was how this conversation, this dialogue played out in public. And what it ultimately led to, of course, is Mr. Favre repaid $500,000 of the $1.1 million at first. He did not pay any more money until I demanded that he pay back the remaining $600,000 plus interest. He then repaid the rest of the 1.1 million. So he's he's repaid that principal, but he has not repaid the interest. And that's one of the reasons the state is suing him at this point to recoup that interest money. And that ongoing lawsuit against Brett Favre and others, that has been the main source of these most recent disclosures. And so we continue to see these court filings released to the public, bringing more details to light. And of those details, what has been most notable to you about what we've learned in these last couple of weeks? Yeah, one of the big text messages that came out recently was a text where Mr. Favre is asking Miss New, is there any way for the media to find out how much money I got and where it came from? I'm paraphrasing, but it's it's a pretty close paraphrase to what he actually said. Obviously, that is a damning text message. And, and to be honest with you, Pablo, when I first read it, I was angry because I thought, you know, this is somebody who publicly has called me a liar, has called uh, the team at the auditor's office, liars. He said that we made all this up. Mm -hmm. Just for future reference, if you're ever in a tussle with a state auditor somewhere, you should understand that there's a team of CPAs documenting every single thing that we say in an audit. So it's best not to say you don't know what you're talking about mm. because we have documents and text messages on our side. So anyway, this, this text comes out and my first reaction was anger. But but at the same time, I thought it was I thought it was healthy that the public understand, no, this is not just something that the state auditor's office is making up. We're not doing this for fun. We're doing this to describe to the public how their money was spent or misspent in this case. And, and that's what we're committed to continuing to do throughout this case. 
Yeah, and then even more recently than that, there were other texts, Shad, speaking to a conversation between Phil Bryant, who was then the governor, and Brett Favre about the usage of this money and the potential criminality of this money. Could you walk us through what was just released? I believe it was last week. Sure, yeah. So so this feels a little bit like a ping pong match being played off the table, walls and the ceiling at the same time. Because yes. you know, a text message will come out and then somebody responds and then there's a rebuttal. But, but the texts that you're talking about, Pablo, uh, were produced by the governor in a court filing. And, and the point of the production that he was making was to say, look, I said, including in text messages, I said that uh, we needed to be aware that certain uses of TANF funds could violate federal law. So Mr. Favre had been pushing him, Ms. New, John Davis, the head of the state agency for a while to fund various things like this volleyball court using public funds. And then the governor pointed out in a text message, look, there are rules around this. Uh, I'm too old to go to federal prison. That, that was a paraphrase of the, the quote from the text. Yes. So you see these communications going back and forth. And, and really, what I think all the parties are trying to get to, anybody who's a part of this case, I think what they're trying to get to is an argument that they were not responsible for, for the misspending of public funds. And ultimately, what's going to have to happen is all these documents and all these arguments are going to have to be laid out in front of a judge in a court somewhere. And the judge is going to have to figure out, okay, Mr. Davis, you owe this amount back. Mr. Favre, you owe this amount back. Ms. New, you owe this amount back. And it's going to be an incredibly difficult task because really at minimum, we're talking about about $77 million. That's a very, very conservative estimate. More realistically, my team estimates that it's a little over $100 million of misspent public funds. Mm. So this is going to be a mammoth undertaking. And so... Over $100 million of misspent public funds here in total, which were supposed to go to the poorest people in your state. That's what we're talking about here when you combine the range of people involved in this. But the portion of that total, which Brett Favre personally is alleged to have misused or misdirected, just to be clear, that's about $8 million, right? A bunch of which went to this volleyball facility at his alma mater, Southern Miss. And in what specific way was using TANF funds, the welfare money here, on the volleyball facility, a violation of state policy or even a violation of the law? Sure, yeah. So so TANF funds, very plainly, cannot go to build brick-and-mortar structures. So what they did when they were moving this money from the nonprofit holding welfare funds to the volleyball facility was to say that this money was going to lease the volleyball court. Well, it's very difficult to make that argument in hindsight because the volleyball court had not yet been built. So they were leasing a volleyball court at a very, very high rental rate before the volleyball court was built. That is not a lease. That is building something with welfare money, which you cannot do. Hmm. So that's one way in which it violated uh, federal regulations. But two, maybe more fundamentally, TANF money should go to benefit poor people, needy people. And so on paper, there was this plan to turn this very fancy varsity quality volleyball court at the University of Southern Mississippi into some sort of center where poor folks could come in from the Hattiesburg area, which is where USM is, and, and some sort of services could be delivered to them. And of course, that never happened either. So really, you get multiple problems with this flow of money to the volleyball court. And, and then 
once we uncovered that and, and once the world knew about that, we realized, okay, well, you know, this is really just something that happened because Mr. Farr was pulling some levers behind closed doors trying to get dollars to flow to this. Uh, one of the more interesting text messages that came out was from former uh, university president of USM, Rodney Bennett, Dr. Rodney Bennett. And he says in a text message, look, Mr. Favre has committed personally to paying for this volleyball court. And what he's doing now is trying to get state and federal money to pay for his commitment that he made mm. to donate to the volleyball court. And what Mr. Favre needs to do, again, I'm paraphrasing Dr. Bennett, he needs to just keep his word and make the payment himself, not go to government for it. So that's really that's really the genesis of, of this whole flow of money to the volleyball court was a commitment by Mr. Favre to, to help fundraise to pay for it uh, that that really didn't happen and he had to go to had to go to government to try to get the dollars for that. You had referenced before in our conversation that millions of these dollars had been effectively set on fire, Shad. That was the phrase you used. Given what you just explained about the volleyball facility, would you count the volleyball facility in that in that fire? Absolutely, because it, it was not used to serve the poor. This money was used to help build a volleyball court. It should have been used for the poor. It was not. And one of the few entities that really pushed back on the audit was the university system here in the state of Mississippi. Instead of challenging my office on the veracity of what we said, maybe you should be thinking of ways to use the volleyball court for the poor. That's what I would be spending my time doing. So, yes, this was part of the money that was set on fire because it didn't go to benefit the people that it should have benefited. But there is something there I do want to still nail down here, Chad, because Brett Favre's attorneys, they have asserted that he did not know where this money came from. Earlier, you said he did know that these were public funds. So just to parse that here, what have you seen specifically to indicate what Brett Favre did and did not know about the source of these funds? Well, we know based on his text messages that he knew this was government money. Mm. But I don't know necessarily if he knew specifically what program it was coming from. I haven't seen a text message to suggest that. It may exist out there. If it does, I haven't seen it. But he did know it was government money. He did know it was coming from the Mississippi Department of Human Services because he was interacting with John Davis, the head of that agency. He was acknowledging in text messages that, that that's where he got the money from. He knew that the money was flowing through a nonprofit, which was designed to serve poor folks, designed to serve a public interest. The nonprofit was run by Miss New. So those are the kinds of things we know. I wouldn't say necessarily that he knew that this was temporary assistance for needy families. I'm not sure if he knows what temporary assistance for needy families is. Really, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. What matters is that he knew this was government funds. Uh, and, you know, based on the text messages that we have seen, he really did not want the public to find out that these funds were flowing in the way they were flowing. And so, in other words, the claim that he doesn't know what TANF is or that TANF was involved here at all, that does not qualify to you as a legal defense for Brett Favre. Well, certainly not civilly. Um, so civilly, he's still going to be responsible for paying that money back. Now, criminally, it's a different matter. And, and of course, my office is, is the state auditor's office. We're not prosecutors. We have no authority to decide who does or does not face criminal charges at the end of one of our investigations or an audit. That decision is made by prosecutors, specifically in this case, either the local DA, the attorney general, or federal prosecutors. And so really, those prosecutors will take everything that we have found everything that's been made public and everything that is being told to them by cooperating witnesses right now. And they're going to have to make decisions about who really had the intent to defraud the public. You know, when we're talking about criminality, it's important to remember that uh, fraud statutes in literally every state in the entire country have an intent element. 
you have to intentionally misspend money. Mm. And sometimes you have to do so to your own personal benefit. Of course, we cannot get into the mind of a criminal. So prosecutors, what they're looking for is some evidence, circumstantial proof that somebody knew what they were doing. They tried to cover it up, whatever it may be. That's the kind of stuff that prosecutors are going to be looking at when they, when they debate charges on really any individual in this case. All right, after the break, just how extensive this fraud case was and who else might be held accountable. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom! Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. So I want to zoom out here for a second here because in the course of just this podcast, you have mentioned a bunch of names that make me feel like I'm also reading like a sports Mad Lib. So it's not just Brett Favre. It's also Ted DiBiase, the WWE's Million Dollar Man. I know filings also mentioned Marcus Dupree, the former Oklahoma football star. I mean, this is in totality a, a fraud that is potentially totaling over nine figures over $100 million, Chad, is what you said. So give us a sense of just how many people are involved in this. So criminally right now, six individuals were indicted. Five of those have pled guilty. So that's that's really the, the tight-knit fraud universe that the public knows about at this stage. But yeah, I, I would say that if you want to see the full roster of people, you could read our audit and, and it reads like a litany of tragedies. This money was spent on this person that did no good for the poor. Then this money was spent on this cause that did no good for the poor. This money was sent to this nonprofit that did no good for the poor. Uh, and, and really it touches a ton of different people and entities through throughout the state of Mississippi. So, so Pablo, you mentioned the, the sports stars kind of at the heart of it. Brett Fard, Teddy DiBiase, uh, Marcus Dupree. But also we've got just basic little nonprofits around here, nonprofits that have offices in the state of Mississippi, the American Heart Association. Uh, the, I'm a member of the National Guard, the National Guard Association, uh, the Junior League around here. Really, any way you could think of to misspend money, money was misspent in that way in this case. It's, it's a really tragic uh, example of government failing to do what it promised uh, for the people. And, and also just the fact that, that we can look back on this and think a bit about it. I think it has eroded people's faith that government can function properly. And, and really what I'm trying to do in the auditor's office is not just throw light onto the facts of this case and tell the public how the money was misspent, but also hopefully to, to give people the sense that, yes, sometimes this stuff happens, but there are offices inside government that are supposed to uh, find this stuff. And, and when we do, we can rectify it and hopefully get some money back for the taxpayers. Yeah, and so in terms of looking ahead here a bit, of those who have agreed already to plead guilty, do you know if any of them are not cooperating with investigators? Do you expect dominoes along those lines to fall here? What we know is that really the the three most important individuals of the five that have pled guilty are cooperating. So one is John Davis, the the head of the state agency who is handling all this money. 
two uh, is the mother-son duo, Nancy and Zach New, who are running the nonprofit that pulled down a lot of this money and then misspent it. So those individuals are, are cooperating and they've agreed to do so. When they cooperate, what that really means is they're sitting down, sometimes with investigators, but really more frequently with prosecutors. So they're sitting down with the local DA and with the federal prosecutors in this case. And, and really, the decisions that prosecutors will make next hinge on what those individuals are saying behind closed doors. And, and they have plenty of time to sit, listen, think about that. Those individuals, once they are done cooperating, will then be sentenced. And then the prosecutors have to make up their minds about whether or not they're going to indict anybody else. And so in terms of the likelihood, the probability of a forthcoming criminal case against Brett Favre in particular, how would you characterize that as of today? Well, I, I just wouldn't. Uh, so what I would say is that any good defense lawyer would love for, for me to start speculating about the likelihood of that. And, and what I would say is that the prosecutors have a ton of information in front of them. They're going to get to make their decisions about that. And, and rather than prejudge the case or, or discuss anything like that, really the decision needs to be on them. And then, and then once they make a decision, if they decide to indict individual X, uh, you know, what they're trying to do is obtain uh, an unbiased jury of that individual's peers who can hear the case out. So really what the public needs to know is that the flow of funds has stopped, that the information that is being gathered is is being put in front of these prosecutors, and, and they're going to have to make the decision now about where to go with it. Having just spent years investigating these cases and and just working in fraud investigation, I'm just curious about the psychology of those who are allegedly perpetrating fraud of this scale, do you have any sense of just how they justify to themselves, just given the stakes and and who they are taking money from, allegedly? How how do they begin to justify this? Yeah, there's there's some good academic research on there who are for the folks who are nerdy enough to want to read this stuff like I do. So there's a there's a Harvard professor named Eugene Soltis who wrote a book called Why They Do It, talks about the psychology of white collar criminals and and what I'll tell you just generally from reading that research and others. Most white collar criminals go to their grave believing that they have done nothing wrong. Mm. So they may admit that they did something wrong. They may say stuff like that in front of a judge to get a lesser sentence. But a lot of them believe that they were doing something that a lot of other people were doing, like speeding, and they just happened to be the one who got caught. Or it was justified in some way because they do so much good for society through so many other ways that they they deserve a little bit of extra money on top of it, even if that money may flow to them in a way that that skirts the edges of the law or is illegal. So we see that pattern a whole lot. And, and to be honest with you, Pablo, I think you can see it in some of the text messages. You know, so right after this investigation started, Nancy knew was texting with one of her sons. And, and I, again, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the text in front of me, but they said, look, we need to get through this. And after we do, we're going to go after everyone who's responsible for this uh, investigation, uh, and everyone is in all caps. So that shows you that these individuals who did this, they believe that they hadn't done anything wrong, probably right up until the moment they pled guilty and even maybe still today. Uh, and folks like that oftentimes look for retribution against the people who have investigated them in the first place. So, you know, that's that's something that comes with my job, but that's what I signed up for. And that's what makes this job important, frankly. It's what makes this job fulfilling at the end of the day. If you're willing to do the tough thing, and protect that money, then you you can't actually make a difference in people's lives down here. Yeah, look, part of the complexity here, of course, is that this all happened during the tenure of Governor Phil Bryant, who was in office from 2012 to 2020. You spoke about the complexities of the work you do before you were the state auditor. I know you worked for the governor. You were his policy director, you were his campaign manager. 
How would you describe your relationship with the former governor now that we've established all of the context of what you're currently investigating? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that we treat the governor and everybody else exactly the same way, which is we hold every individual accountable to the law. And so in this particular case, you know, I knew that the, the public would be sensitive to that argument. Oh, you used to work for Phil Bryant. How are you going to guarantee the public that you're going to investigate this thoroughly, including uh, investigating anything revolving around him? And so what we did in the office to give that give the public that certainty was we turned over every ounce of evidence that we have over to the FBI. And in fact, we have just in the last two weeks assigned a new agent from my office to assist the FBI in their investigation into this. So ultimately, even if somebody wants to say, well, you pulled a punch on Governor Bryant as it relates to this case, that is impossible for us to do because the FBI is seeing everything that we're seeing. They literally, the FBI literally worked from my office for a period so that they could have access to our documents. That was back during COVID when some federal offices were shut down and, and our office maintained a small footprint and, and stayed open. So really, we have we have done everything humanly imaginable to make sure that people understand that not only are we thoroughly investigating this case, this case, but we've got eyes literally over the back of our shoulders some days looking at the stuff that we're looking at. And ultimately, all of this information is going to be turned over to prosecutors and prosecutors are going to have to make the decision about what they do with each of these individuals going forward. And the FBI, of course, is involved here because originally we're talking about federal money in this case. Yep. But, but you know, there have been calls, Chad. I want to ask you about this directly. There have been calls that, okay, this person should recuse himself from this case because of this relationship. Did you ever consider recusal? How did you approach that question? No, because recusal would look like me giving the case over to the FBI, which is what I did. So, so really, in the early days of the investigation, what we were investigating was a kickback allegation, right? So there was no reason to recuse back then because I didn't even really know any of the parties. I didn't know the vendor, didn't know John Davis. Once we got down to the point where we realized, okay, this was a much more sprawling scheme, what I did is said, all right, pause. Let's give everything that we've got over to the FBI. Let's make sure they have it. And then they can run and gun with this. So the people who were saying, well, you should have recused yourself in the beginning are ignoring the fact that I effectively did do the very thing that they were asking me to do, which is to give everything over to the FBI. And, and you know, you can you can ask the FBI if they feel like that I've, I've pulled some sort of punch in this entire case. I doubt they'll comment. But uh, if, if you got them to comment, what I think they would say is, of course not. He's the one who uncovered all this. So if, if this is some sort of a, a means of hiding something, why would he have come forward in the first place? Why would he take it to the local DA? Who, by the way, I'm a Republican. The, the local DA is a Democrat. I wanted to make sure that individuals were looking at this case uh, despite what party they were in. So, so really, this office has managed those strategic decisions throughout the course of the investigation in a way that, that gives the public certainty that this case is being thoroughly investigated and the prosecutors are getting a fair look at everything. One more question then, just the interests of, of our due diligence, which I hope you can appreciate as the literal state auditor of Mississippi, <laughs> is simply, have you seen any evidence of wrongdoing or criminal activity by now former Governor Phil Bryant? Ultimately, what we do is, is dig up the facts. So, so really, the, the role of the auditor, the role of the investigations division here is to dig up those facts and to put them in front of prosecutors. In fact, in some smaller cases, to be honest with you, we've dug up the facts, put them in front of prosecutors, and prosecutors have said, and don't tell me how to prosecute this case. <laughs> so, so really, we, we go into our job knowing that we're supposed to look for anything that looks like the misspending of public funds. We're supposed to present that 
to prosecutors, and we're supposed to let them look at that and make a decision. In addition to that, the, the added wrinkle here in this case is that there is new evidence that's coming out every single day because the witnesses who have agreed to cooperate are cooperating and giving new verbal evidence every single day to the prosecutors. So for some of those meetings, we're not even in those meetings. Those meetings are being held oftentimes with just prosecutors in the room. So really what we're here to do at this point is to get prosecutors every piece of evidence that they need, anything that we can give them. If, it, if they don't have it and we don't have it, it's to go out and work with the FBI to get it and give it over to the prosecutors. And really they have to make the decision about whether or not they believe somebody has violated a criminal statute. Coming up, the blowback you face when you take on maybe the biggest celebrity in your state. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, Perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot. Taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. So in your line of work, I know it is common to investigate public officials. It does feel less common to investigate maybe the state's favorite son or at least one of its biggest celebrities. How would you describe the experience that you've had investigating Brett Favre? How would you describe... What's been different about doing this in particular? So the investigation itself was really not that much different because you're dealing with documents, text messages, contracts, the same sorts of fundamental pieces of evidence that you would in any case. Really, the difference is the media scrutiny on what you're doing. That heightened media scrutiny meant that we had to get this right. We had to handle this case perfectly, and I think we have. The other thing that makes this different is... Uh, the person that we're investigating has shown a willingness to go public and criticize the office using a much bigger megaphone than I have. So, for example, uh, when Mr. Favre went on Twitter several months ago back in October and said that I was lying and making all this up, you know, I'm sitting there uh, with a very small megaphone. He tweets it out to tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, I don't know, a bunch of people out in the world the good thing really in this case is that I had the facts on my side. So over time, I knew that the the statements that we were making 
and the findings that we had in our audit would be proven out. So I didn't worry too much about that at the moment. It's just in that interim period when it takes where it takes the public some time to figure out, oh, wait, the state auditor is not making this up. You have to weather a ton of criticism and and honestly threats. So you mm. get get some of those coming in too. And uh, wait, describe and the, describe the threats. What what was what was that part of it like? How would you characterize what you received in that genre? Yeah, they weren't fun. That's that's how I would describe it. Uh, so everything from you don't know what you're talking about all the way to physical threats. I'm used to receiving incoming fire. It's just that it was multiplied times a thousand or or perhaps more mm. for Mr. Farr, and and it was multiplied over the course of the country too. So, uh, you know, it's not just Mississippians who are sending me this. In fact, most of the hateful messages that I got were mainly from the Wisconsin area. I have no idea why that was the case. Uh, sure. But most most of them were coming from that area. And so you just have to ignore it at the end of the day. You just have to look at it and say, you know what? That person uh, doesn't live here. Not serious. I'm not ever going to meet them and I got to keep doing my job. Uh, there are days when you go home and you clench the steering wheel a little bit tighter and you think, uh, to hell with this job. I thought that a couple of times, but uh, I also thought, you know, if I'm not doing this, I'm passing the buck on to somebody else who may not do it in the way that I'm doing it. And so that's why it's important to stay the course here. That's why it's important to to tell the truth and, and do what you know is right. I just want to read you one of those texts, which uh, obviously um, was unpleasant for you to deal with, Shad, because Brett Favre had claimed, quote, despite all efforts to seek clarification with the auditor, he has never granted a call back or a meeting with me, but has instead only repeatedly run to the media, end quote. And to that, you say what? It's nonsense. It's not true. So Mr. Favre reached out just before he sent those, he pushed out those tweets and he wanted a meeting uh, with me. And so I told his folks, I don't do individual meetings where you get to come in, slap me on the back, sign a baseball card, a football card, hand it to me and make this all go away. What we will do, if you want clarification on the things that we're saying out in public in the audit findings, is you can come in and you can sit down with a case agent who is investigating the case. And so that's exactly what we told Mr. Farr's folks. Uh, that actually happened. So he had a meeting with a case agent from the auditor's office and the FBI was in the room at the same time. We showed him the contract that justified the $1.1 million payment to him. We showed him where it required to give him the speeches. We asked him if he gave the speeches and a few other questions. And then he, of course, says no. And then a little bit later, he goes on to Twitter and says, look, I, I, I never got a meeting and, and I, don't, I don't even know what this is all about. That's just not true. He knew exactly what it was about. He acknowledged it in the meeting with the FBI. So when the FBI is in the room, if you tell a lie, that's a felony. Mm. And so when the FBI asks him, hey, did you go give these speeches? He says, no. That clarifies it uh, in as much as the audit finding goes. So he knew exactly what we were talking about here. He knew about the heart of it. I'm not in the business of creating public fights. What I'm in the business of doing is identifying how money was spent and then writing it in a very boring audit and then telling people exactly what happened. And, and so that's all we did. Uh, and, and efforts to frame it any other way are really just misleading the public. I want to get a sense of the stakes here because all of this is occurring in a state with the worst poverty rates in the nation, where so many of its African-American population are specifically at risk. We just saw Jackson, the capital of Mississippi, go without clean water for a month and a half thereabouts. So what do you think the case that you're investigating, the largest case of welfare fraud, the largest case of fraud period in this history of the state of Mississippi, what do you think it says about the state, those in power, how the poorest citizens in Mississippi are being treated? 
So the way I think about it is this. We've seen all this money misspent. It should have gone to benefit a ton of poor folks here in the state of Mississippi. We see other issues around the state. Uh, Pablo, you mentioned water in Jackson and infrastructure issues, but I would add to that crime. Mm. Just last year in 2021, Jackson was the per capita homicide leader of the entire United States for any metro, major metro area. Uh, it's a tragedy. What we know is that there are serious issues, serious challenges facing the state. And we have less margin for error than a lot of other states because we need to address those issues. So when I see this money being misspent, I'm, of course, instantly thinking, what could that have done for somebody who might have instead received a tax credit or a fundable tax credit that would have incentivized them to go from being unemployed to being employed, would have given them that extra boost to their paycheck to make it possible to hire that child care person for their for their child so that they could get into the workforce and it would have changed the fortunes of their family. Those are the kinds of things that are heartbreaking to think about, but it's also what makes this job fulfilling, to be honest with you, because at the end of the day, we can look back and we can say, yes, that money was misspent in this case, but we put a stop to it and we were able to make sure that people now know that we are watching that money. And, and I can tell you there has been a, a cultural shift inside DHS, and I'm hopeful that that cultural shift means that this money going forward will be spent in a way that's much more effective for the poor and much more likely to make a difference in the lives of people in Mississippi. We really uh, have to be careful, I think, as a society not to become too numb to this because we have the resources in this country to do really important things for folks who are in need, but none of it is going to get done if we don't have eyeballs on this funding and and we're not making sure that that the funding is going to the folks who need it the most that's really that's really the onus that we that we bear in the auditor's office and and all around the country among law enforcement entities who are who are looking at funds like this all the time Chad White state auditor of the state of Mississippi thank you for joining ESPN daily thank you Pablo I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.